Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Jen White is an anchor and host on WBEZ, a public radio station in Chicago, and she's also the host of the recent podcast, Making Oprah. She previously hosted All Things Considered on NPR station Michigan Radio, and she has hosted and produced a bunch more radio and television on US public media. Jen is in Sydney for OzPod 2017, the ABC's second annual podcasting conference, and she's here in the studio for a chat about podcasts, public media, the future of audio, and of course, Oprah. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Olivia, thanks for the invitation. You started working in public media in 1999, Mm -hmm. I believe. What was your first job back then and how did you get it? Wow. So (laughs) it's taking me back. When When I first started in 99, I was trying to figure out basically what I wanted to do with my life. And and I was considering going back to school, specifically to study uh, journalism. And at the same time, uh, because of how U.S. education is, is structured, I had student debt and needed to figure out if I was instead going to just work and, and work on paying some of that student debt off. And I'd been listening to public radio since I was about 16 years old. My older sister introduced me to it. So I loved public radio. And I found uh, a job posting for a fundraiser at Michigan Radio, and I had some experience in fundraising. I'd been a fundraiser while I was working, while I was a student at the University of Michigan. And I said, I I would love to work there. I love what they do. I probably will not get this job, but I really want to be in, I want to work in public radio, and this is a way I can do it. And I applied and surprisingly got the position. So that was actually my first job in public radio. It was not on the air. Uh, It was behind the scenes. And from there, I worked in fundraising. I transitioned into management. Um, I ended up managing the television part of our property and found that at the same time, I was able to do production and, and produce shows and host shows. And so I was developing that part of my resume as well. But I am at my heart a creative person, and uh, I wanted to transition out of management. So when the door opened for me to do that and to move back into radio, which is my preferred medium, I I made that leap and turned into the the host for All Things Considered at Michigan Radio. So I've only been at WBEZ for about a year and a half now. Um, I moved there last 
February, and uh, making Oprah came soon after. You've been at WBEZ for just one year, but in those almost 20 years since 1999, you were mostly working in public media. Is that right? Uh, just in public media. Mm-hmm. So how have you seen U.S. public media change over those 20 years? Oh, wow. I think for us, we've had to become better at telling our own story. Public radio, in my experience, is not very very good at ringing its own bell and saying, this is what we do and this is why we're important uh, to the community. And most public radio stations are mostly funded by individuals. We get a small portion of funding from the government, but the vast majority of our funding comes from people in our community giving small gifts, not major donors necessarily, but people giving $50 a year or $120 a year. One of the things I've seen is that we've had to get better about making the case for why we matter to listeners, to viewers, because people have so many media options now. So that's been a a major part of the shift I've seen. But I also think we're at a time when media has become so splintered and people are able to tune into their own echo chamber. We have to be strategic about reaching new audiences and talking to people who, who might not find us organically, reaching out to new audiences, younger audiences, more diverse audiences, because at, at the core, we are about educating listeners. We're, we're a journalistic organization. And so it is in our best interest to reach all audiences we can. But as a service organization, we want to serve the public good. And so we've had to become very deliberate about about reaching out to those audiences. I definitely want to talk more about the splintering of media later on. But I think you made a really interesting point there about making the case for public media. U.S. public media is is funded very differently to our public media here, which is fully funded by the government. Do you think that that changes the quality or the tone of the media? That's an interesting question. I can really only speak from the member station side of things. So you have NPR, which is is the national organization. So any any government money, any federal money filters through that organization down to member stations. From the member station perspective, what I think it does is helps us be more accountable to listeners. Now we're not reliant on a single individual to, to pay the money because we, we have such a diverse group of people supporting the station. We have a lot of people who we know are invested in the station and who give us feedback and who tell us when they think we're doing well and, and when they don't. Now our editorial lines are very strong. We don't, you know, change a story just because a donor said they didn't like it. Of course, it's not, it's not what we do as journalists, but I think relying on community support helps us be hyper aware of whether or not we're serving the public good. It's just a heightened level of, of sensitivity to to whether or not we're we're doing what we need to do as journalists when it comes to, to serving the public. You've worked both in radio and in television. Mm-hmm. So what does radio have to offer as a medium that television doesn't and vice versa? Well, everyone always jokes, well, in radio, you can have on your pajamas. <laughs> no one would know. I've, well, the person who's in the studio with me would, would know. And I would my, just like everyone to know that Jen is I, actually not at all in her pajamas. I am fully, fully clothed. I, for me, I love radio because it's such an intimate medium. So much of what we do is just about what you're able to do with your voice, what you're able to do with language. And, and I love, I love the human voice. Um, 
I love the intimacy of being in someone's ears. Because I worked in television as well as radio, my expectation was always that I would be more recognizable uh, from the television side of things. And that that never proved to be true. Um, I remember the first time I was recognized by my voice. I was in a grocery store and I was on the phone with my mother clarifying some ingredients for a recipe I was going to do that evening. And someone just ran up to me and said, you're Jen White. And I <laughs> jumped. It startled me. And I said, mom, I got to go. And I'm thinking, what, what's going on? What did I do? And, and the person started, I listen to you every day. And that was really an important moment for me because it told me that the human voice has a power in it. And because we spend time listening to radio stations, it's not, you know, you might watch a television show and then change the channel to another show. People develop a real relationship with a station, with the voices in that station. They feel like we're their friends. They feel like we know them. We're in their car with them. We're in their home with them. They spend hours with us. And the intimacy of that relationship is very appealing to me. In the first episode of Making Oprah, when you find out that Oprah has agreed to an interview, <laughs> you have a pretty strong response. And you say in that episode that as a 40-something-year-old black woman who spent her career working in media, that Oprah means a lot. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. I, so I'm, I'm one of seven children. Um, I'm the sixth of seven. And in our family, uh, there were a lot of voices. We're all we're a pretty boisterous bunch. And we talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that I was probably one of the more talkative members of our family. But my mom always told me, she would say, you have the gift of gab. You're going to do something with that one day. So when I was in middle school, I was about 12 years old, Oprah arrived on the scene. And up until that time, there really hadn't been a model for me of, of black womanhood in that way on television. I'm sure there were newscasters, but, but what she did was different. Uh, she was really directing conversations. She wasn't presenting the news. She was talking to people and engaging with them and, and challenging them. And my mother would say, you can do that. She pointed to Oprah specifically as a model for what I could do. And I held that and carried that with me. And so Having the opportunity to interview her, to, to talk to her about her career was incredibly meaningful to me because I'd been following her for close to 20 years, more than that, now that I'm doing the math, closer to 30 years. And uh, yeah, so it was, in, it was incredibly significant. You had the prestige of WBEZ behind you, um, but nevertheless, Oprah is Oprah and she's seemingly trying to stay out of the spotlight in, in recent years. So I want to ask if you have any tips for young producers on how to get big name talent. Yeah, you know, the, the approach we took with this, uh, Colin McNulty, the producer on making Oprah, persistence. He was incredibly persistent. Um, we reached out through official channels for her through her media team, and we were very clear with them about what we were trying to do. You know, this isn't really about Oprah. This is about the history of the show. And then as we began to do interviews for the podcast, and we were talking to so many people, I, I can't, I, I don't even know exactly how many interviews we did at this point, but, but there were dozens. And we were able to connect with producers who were there from the beginning, uh, executive producers who were there for, from the beginning, the man who hired her to Chicago initially. And every time we would gather another interview of someone who was close to her, close to the show, we would contact them again and say, hey, just so you know, 
we have this individual on, it would be great to have her voice as part of this too. So by the time we had all of the interviews we really wanted to collect, the only voice that was missing was hers. And so the case we made was, look, this is essentially her story and we have everyone's voice but hers. And it'll be so much better if she tells her own story. And I think that was important. The other thing we did, you know, as we were talking to people who worked on the show who still had relationships with her, we'd say, put in a good word for us. You know, they had a good experience during the interview. Hey, if you can, if you can mention to her that it would be good for her to be a part of the project, we'd really appreciate it. At her peak, Oprah had 40 million eyeballs watching her show each week. Or is it 80 million? I 40, can never... 40 million. Two eyes, two. each person. <laughs> in, in that case, sure. <laughs> but it, it occurs to me that now we're sort of in a post-Oprah world. The media we consume, as you said, is so splintered. We're obsessed with having everything on demand and we have so much choice. And it seems that we might never have another phenomenon like Oprah with such a big audience watching and especially all at the same time. So what do you think we're missing out by not having that? A lot. I think we're missing out on a lot. When I was growing up, and I'm going to date myself a bit now, um, I think about the fact that we had probably between three and five television channels. So when you tuned into the nightly news, everyone was watching the same set of facts. There might be different perspectives or different opinions, but the facts were the same. I think where we are in media right now, where we can really self-select what we want to hear is damaging because what it means is, is truth, if you will, then becomes subjective. And that, that's problematic. What Oprah was able to do was really convene people around central ideas. You may not come away agreeing about everything, but everyone was having the same conversation. They were a part of the same conversation. In the U.S., at least, there are major divisions in, in our country. And I think the splintering of media drives it and, and perpetuates it as well. How we fix that, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Making Oprah was a three-episode serial, mm -hmm. and then you added three bonus episodes. So what was behind that decision? Was there a desire to have it just as three, and then that came up later? Why not just make it six episodes? When we started Making Oprah, it was part of the expansion of our podcast unit at WBEZ. And so what we wanted to do was try to build something that was brandable, that we could then you reuse that brand to do future projects, but also with with understanding about how many resources we had to put towards the project. So Colin McNulty, the producer, um, was giving 100% of his time to the project. I have a dual role at the station because I also co-host one of our daily shows. And so I was giving well, probably between 40, 50, 60% of my time, at, depending upon where we were in the production schedule. And then there were a handful of other people who were working either as executive producers or on the back end doing sound production. So we realized we need to do something that we can do really well, but not overextend ourselves. And so doing a multi-part documentary series seemed like a good idea. The extras were things that we couldn't quite fit into that three-episode arc uh, that we decided on, but that we felt was still interesting content. Things that were 
fun, like talking about Oprah's hair, which is, as a Black woman, of interest to me because the hair struggle is real. Um, talking about politics, you know, that was that was uh, an extra that de- it deserved its own time. And then talking about Phil Donahue, who really pioneered the talk show format on television. We couldn't really get completely into his story because Making Oprah wasn't about Donahue, but we did want to spend some time looking at, at how he developed as a host. And the interview we did with him was so much fun. We, we wanted to spend some time with that as well. So, you know, we, we really strongly considered how do we make the most of the resources we're putting towards this first project because it was kind of a test run for the station, but take advantage of, of this extra material we have and make sure we, we do something with that as well. There's a lot of chatter out there in the podcast world about the ideal length for a podcast. Mm, mm-hmm. So yours were an hour long. Some mm. people think the hour's the, the gold standard. Other people will say 22 minutes, 28 minutes. What do you think? So this is something we talk about a lot at our station. And I, I really think it has so much to do with the type of content you're producing. Um, if it's personality-driven the personalities who, who are behind it. Um, I think about one podcast I listen to called The Read, and it will run anywhere from an hour and 15 minutes to two and a half hours. They, they just sort of talk and it ends up where it ends up. But I listen to the whole thing. I may not listen in one sitting, but I listen to the entire broadcast, to the entire podcast rather. If it's intense content, um, say a, a true crime podcast, Maybe an hour is a little too long because it's intense and complex. So I don't know that there's a magic length. I think you just have to be thoughtful about how complex the the content is and how much people can digest in one sitting. If someone does figure out what that perfect formula is, please let me know because I think we'd all love to hear what that number is. Your background is in broadcast, Mm -hmm. but you're here in Australia speaking at OzPod. Uh, which is obviously all about podcasting. So what is the difference to you between a broadcast host and a podcast host? And how do you manage switching between the two? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so one of the big differences is just time. Um, when I'm live on air, you have to watch the clock. And so you don't necessarily get to have the full conversation you want. Um, if it's live, it's it's like I've got to I've got to cut this at fifteen, and that's what I have to do, no matter how many more questions I I have for the person or how much I might want to extend the conversation. I feel like in podcasting you have the ability to to delve a little deeper, um, to be a little more creative about how you use the interview, and to play with sound and integrate that in into the conversation. And so, for instance, with making over because we had access to so much archival footage of the show. We were really able to weave that in with these conversations in in a seamless way so that you might be hearing from Oprah and then a producer and then content from the show. And that's harder to do when you're doing live radio. Um, But that being said, I think when it comes to interviewing, regardless of whether it's happening in a live broadcast setting or for podcasts, there are just certain core skills you need to develop to, to be effective in either space. The primary one being to make sure you're listening to the person you're interviewing because you may have a list of questions that you want to hit, but a conversation can go in in a really magical direction if you're listening and you allow yourself the flexibility to take the conversation in an unexpected direction because your guest is going there and you can go there with them. 
Do you think people should pay for podcasts Ooh. outside of the public media ecosystem, which is obviously where making Oprah fitted in? But do you think that by using the advertising funded model that that's setting podcasting up to have a big crash like what happened with print journalism? That's a really good question. Huh. You know, you're asking the person who who has worked in public media her entire <laughs> life, and so everything we do. Um, what I would say is that my perspective is probably unique because I have spent my career in public radio, which is is funded primarily by voluntary contributions. I think people will often pay for what they value, and so. Putting a podcast behind a paywall, I don't know. I don't know if it would be effective if you don't already have an audience who's coming for it, right? So you have newspapers now moving some of their content behind paywalls or special content behind paywalls, but they already hopefully have an audience that's coming to them for content and they know what they're getting. I think the difficulty in having people pay for podcasts at this stage is that it's still really new. Um, There's so many people who don't even know how to access podcasts. So even before they can get to paying for it, they have to figure out how to download it. So I don't know if we're at that point where we can really ask people to pay for something. Whether that leads to a crash, I don't know. I don't know. But it's a good thing to consider. So if I were to ask you to look into this crystal ball that we don't actually have here, but uh-huh. we're just going to pretend we do, what do you see in the future, say, in five years for podcasts and then in 50 years for podcasts? Oh, wow. Well, let me work backwards. I mean, I think in 50 years, if if the trends that we're seeing right now bear out, we'll be in a, in a space where the technology will be completely different. But will still probably even more deeply be rooted in, in, a, um, in, a, in a format where people are able to self-select what they want to hear, really this on-demand content. Do you think linear radio will still exist? I hope so. You know, I hope so. I think there's something really lovely about getting in your car and, you know, turning on your drive time host and while they're telling you the daily news, they're also telling you what the roads look like. And, and, you know, maybe technology will have evolved at that point where you can have that kind of integration into an on-demand experience, perhaps. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm attached, but then <laughs> this is where I've spent my career. So I think in 50 years, it, it's going to be so, so reliant on where technology is at that point. But I don't see us moving away from an on-demand model of 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 radio and television I, I think it's going to continue to move in that direction but in five years what i hope to see in in podcasting is is a real understanding of how i'm going to i'm going to sound a little precious at this moment so forgive me but how important that space is anyone can put a podcast out but i think if you're putting work out there, be really clear about why you're doing it. I hope in five years we see people putting podcasts out who are very clear in what their intention is. They're, they're very clear about who they're trying to reach. They're not just doing it because they want their voice out there. They're doing it with a clear idea of serving the public good. 
Um, even if it's through storytelling or if it's through documentary work or it's through uh, a comedic podcast, whatever the reason is, um, but that we see that space really begin to, I don't want to use the term become more professional, but we see people really doing their best work in that space. There's a glut of podcasts in the world right now. Um, it's such a saturated space, but I think we will be better served as podcasters if we present our best work. And so in five years, that's what I hope to see. And I hope to see institutions, um, radio stations, broadcast organizations, really invest in putting the best work they can out there so that people value what they find in podcasting. And it's not just like, oh, there's thousands of, of these little things out there. No, they understand, oh, there's really good work here that I can access and take advantage of and learn uh, more about the world from, you know, whether it's coming from Australia or it's coming from, from the U.S. That's what I hope to see in five years. Someone else's prediction for the future, Caitlin Thompson, the U.S. director of Acast, which is a podcast platform. She says that she thinks the future of podcasting sounds like women and people of color. Mm. What do you think of that? I love that. I love that. I mean, one of the so this is the other side of the coin. Anyone can put a podcast out there. But I think a lot of a lot of organizations are struggling with how do we diversify our newsrooms? How do we diversify our staff? How do we get more more women and people of color involved in broadcasting? I think one of the reasons podcasting is so attractive is because people of color, women, people from the LGBTQ community, they don't have to um, edit themselves. They don't feel like they have to be less black, less female, less anything. They can just present their full selves um, in that space because it's not going through some of the administrivia, if you will, that comes along with being part of an institution. And that's very attractive. I love that. But what I would love to see is to have those voices have institutional support so that they can do their best work, so that they have access to the resources they need to sound professional, to sound good, to to market themselves, to reach other audiences. That's what I'd really love to see. Jen, what is next for you? Do you have another podcast project in the pipeline? So we are using the making um, model on another Chicago story that I can't talk about quite yet because we're still waiting for the big interview to come through. So fingers crossed. But that brand making is going to be home for another documentary. It's another Chicago story that has a national and I think international appeal and hopefully we'll be able to have a great follow-up to making Oprah. All right. And if you can't tell me about that, maybe you could tell me your top three podcasts right now. Oh, wow. Okay. So top three podcasts. Uh, I would say This American Life is always a favorite. I just think they do such a good job of investigative journalism and and just great storytelling. That's always one. Um, Snap Judgment is another. Um, I'm not sure if folks here are familiar with it, but it's a storytelling podcast hosted by a guy named Glenn Washington, who strangely I grew up with. I've known Glenn uh, since we were wee tykes. And so it's great to see him enjoy this incredible success in the podcasting world. So it's a merging of storytelling and music. And uh, it's just phenomenal. The other podcast that I recently got turned on to that I am addicted to right now is LeVar Burton Reads. LeVar Burton is an actor. He was in uh, Roots and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, not Deep Space Nine. I apologize. Star Trek Next Generation. 
get it together, White. Um, and so he also had a children's show called Reading Rainbow that introduced young people to different different books. And it was just lovely. I grew up watching it. And now he has a podcast where he basically reads stories. So far, a lot of the stories have been in the science fiction and fantasy genres, uh, which which I love. Um, but they're they're beautifully, beautifully read and given wonderful sound treatment. And because of my job, I don't get to do as much pleasure reading as I typically would. Um, I'm usually reading something for work. And so being able to listen to that podcast while I'm out walking the dogs or just driving home and stuck in traffic, it, it helps me <laughs> feel like I'm getting my, my reading fix. And it's just, it's just a phenomenal podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. Jen White, welcome to Australia. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining us here in the 2SER studio. Thank you, Olivia. It's been a pleasure. That's it for us this week on Fourth Estate. As always, stay in touch with us on Facebook and on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. I'm Olivia Rosenman. See you next week. 